Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma Podcast. Um, I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. I'm really delighted you're here and I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today and we're going to be doing a series as well. This is going to be a three-part series. So um, welcome to the show, Victoria San Esparza. Hi James, thanks for having me today. I am very excited to be chatting with you and to talk a little bit more about this over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. We're going to be talking about um, design and innovation and its impact on uh, church and faith and uh, culture and our lives. And we're going to be doing that around three particular areas. Um, um, And we're going to begin with empathy today um, and then move on to um, a couple of other areas in the next few weeks so that's going to be really interesting um empathy curiosity and storytelling are going to be the three different parts of this series so we're going to begin with empathy but first before we get into that just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and, and kind of your story sure yeah so um like james said my name is victoria um i run a consulting firm called in the water design um, and we primarily work with churches and faith-based organizations in thinking about how do we apply uh, design strategies, methods that are used in uh, lots of tech and for-profit industries. So we think about innovation um, and kind of new visions for church. Um, I will do that uh, about half the time. And then the other half of the time, I am employed at a church in my neighborhood called White Rock United Methodist Church, where I am uh, the minister to families, children, and youth. Um, And so I kind of live in this dual reality of being a business owner and working with churches around innovation and then also uh, practicing it in my context. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, Victoria was one of the lecturers on an online course that I did recently. Um, And we were talking, one of the things we talked about was design thinking, which which, which fascinated me. And it's linked with empathy and storytelling and um, other things. And uh, yeah, as soon as I, as soon as I heard um, the first, I think the first of the three talks you gave in that course, I thought this is something I really want on the podcast. We need to talk this is something I really because story because this is something I'm these are things I'm really passionate about as well, uh, and yeah. I think are really really important to talk about and something that we've talked about a little bit on this show. So uh, yeah, I thought it'd be really good to just spend a few weeks talking about it and really going into depth about it. Uh, so. So yeah, let's kind of begin, I guess, and like, I guess, I don't know, um, talking about empathy in relation to design and innovation and and faith, obviously. Um, so where does that kind of begin for you? Yeah, so I feel like it's really important for me to kind of start with like how I ended up doing like this weird <laughs> kind of in between of uh, yeah. like ministry and design. Um, so, you know, I'm going to talk about design today and in the next couple of weeks. Um, and when I talk about design, I'm talking about something very particular called human-centered design, uh, which is an interdisciplinary methodology for solving problems. Um, and essentially, uh, the way that I talk about design is that design is kind of this eternal optimistic outlook on life and that says uh, the best is still out there and we can always do better. Um, and it also acknowledges the reality that the people who are most affected by a problem um, are the people who are the experts, not usually the people sitting up in a boardroom um, or a committee meeting making decisions. Um, and so human-centered design is really based in this idea that if we go to people first, if we actually talk to the people affected by 
any given problem that we can name, whether it's, um, you know, has related to our churches or education or government, um, that those people generally have better insights than the people uh, kind of paid to do it on their job. Um, and uh, this kind of work is actually really prominent in a lot of tech industries, a lot of startups. Um, I went to San Francisco for a like vacation like about a year ago, and I was in like a, a cab with somebody, and they said, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm, I consult it, and I do uh, design thinking and human-centered design. And they just like went off, and they knew exactly what it was. Um, and I live in Texas, and what I do when I explain it is that I have to go through the whole thing with explaining to people. Um, and I think that just, to me, showed that the very obvious reality that this is um, a method being employed in for-profit industries, mm. um, that churches and faith-based communities um, have really never heard of. Um, and so for me, um, realizing, kind of stepping into that world, um, I was doing my under my master's degree at SMU for my, my ma- master's in divinity, um, and I stumbled kind of into this design program. And within, like, the first class I took, the first three hours, I was like, this is exactly what I was meant to do. <laughs> um, it's this, this connection to people and, um, and believing that, like, we make things as, like, the parts of solutions. It's messy um, and it's complicated and, like, our churches desperately need this. Um, and so that was kind of, for me, just, it was, like, almost immediate. It was, like, this is what I was meant to do. And this gap, this space of, like, how do we understand people better to solve their problems better um, is clearly what the church and basically every faith institution has been struggling with, in my opinion, for, for decades. Um, and here we have this framework uh, within, you know, kind of for-profit context that actually could help us. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is fascinating how design thinking works. It, I, I was absolutely blown away by it um and you're right about you're right about the people on the ground are the people that know what's going on when you you have to listen to people's stories to understand what's really going on and what their experience is so that you can actually make Mm -hmm. changes that are going to help them yeah absolutely i i think that we tend to get ourselves particularly um you know, the world around us kind of says like there are experts and that solve problems, and then there are people who like experience their solutions. And I think that uh, design, human-centered design, um, in in across the board, is basically kind of reclaiming this idea that like the people who actually know the most are the people on the ground. And um, and I think that when we're particularly talking about empathy, um, this this is not like a, a really highly valued word within uh, problem-solving context. I think. When it comes to church and faith, we're all about, like, empathy, like, pastoral care. Uh, we're all about, like, caring about, like, other people. But when it comes suddenly to, like, we have this significant problem in our church, like, our first thought is not, like, let's go talk to the people who are upset. Um, it's those people are being annoying, and we forgot to solve this problem without them. And I think that, like, that to me is, like, this huge divide in, like, really solving problems that meet needs um, and theoretically solving problems uh, when you're probably the person who's not close enough to it to do it. Um, and there's something really important about going to the people who are most frustrated, most affected, and saying, like, what do you need? Um, what are the things that we've overlooked? What are the experiences and stories uh, that can really shape the way that, that we're thinking about this problem? Or, or and maybe potentially even overlooking things. So how have, you, how have you come into contact with this in the work that you do? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So part of the design process, um, there, it, 
it is, it's messy and it's not always the same. Uh, but generally, human-centered design kind of uh, requires a couple of things of us. So the first is, you know, going out into a community and saying, um, you know, what's going on? What's up? Like, who's 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 who in the community? Um, you know, is this, we're thinking about a particular problem. How is it being affected? Um, and then kind of moving into stage of reframing how we've thought about those problems based on some of those conversations. Um, and then generating ideas and saying, like, okay, we've learned things from people so now we're starting to generate new kind of maybe even ambitious ideas, uh, and then uh, going into prototyping our ideas. So, so low cost, um, low resolution um, ways of trying to test our ideas to see things and make sense in context. Um, and I think empathy really particularly uh, finds itself most valuable in kind of that first first place. Uh, where we're starting out by saying like, who who's around here? Who's in the neighborhood? Um, who's affected by this problem? And a lot of the work that I do with churches. Uh, is giving them the skills and the tools to basically go have conversations with their neighbors, uh, go ask questions to their, their congregants. Uh, because what I find is that pastors um, and, and seminaries don't actually, don't actually train, they're not places that train you to be good interviewers. <laughs> uh, they train you to listen and then offer advice. And the problem with that is that uh, it assumes that you have the answer. And empathy really, I think, uh, is a much more humble position than that. And it says, uh, I have no idea. I don't know what your experience is. So I'm here to soak up as much of that experience as possible, even if I, A, don't understand it, or B, disagree with the things that you're saying. Like, I'm present with you enough uh, to listen and care without offering you a way to solve your problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's a fine balance, I guess, isn't it? Because you've got to, in one sense, to solve problems, you've got to stand away from them and look at them objectively without emotion and sentiment. But in another sense, you can't solve problems without empathy because yeah. uh, because you have to be able to connect with the people who are experiencing those problems and the outcomes of those problems um, so that you can solve them. So that, that must be a difficult balance to, to strike. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that it is. Um, and I think that in this sense, uh, this is part of what makes like, this is the challenge that designers feel. And I, and I make the argument that every single person, every pastor, um, every kind of spiritual leader is a designer uh, because we're creating experiences for people. Fundamentally, that is our job. Like our jobs are to create experiences that are meaningful for people. Um, and if we are not in doing that intentionally, we're not designing those experiences intentionally, uh, then we're missing the mark. And I think that part of the, the tension that a, a designer feels is uh, you have a set of expertise, which I think is true within our, you know, our churches. Pastors have a set of theological, uh, you know, education, experiences. Uh, but there's also the tension of, like, who are the, the people we're really serving and what are their actual realities like? Um, and I think that good design constantly kind of, like, you feel the pull of like leaning into your own kind of intuition of it says like, this is the direction we're supposed to go. And also being challenged by the people around you that say, uh, no, you've missed this thing um, that maybe your education didn't prepare you for. Uh, and we want to share with you and you need to be open to hearing it. And, and, and that constant like kind of tug and pull of, of those kind of what to me often feel like opposites. Um, I think is, is part of what makes really innovative ideas is because you're opening yourself up to opportunities while also kind of leaning on uh, the skills that you already have um, for guidance in doing new things. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that balance, isn't it? All the time. Um, and I know there are a lot of people listening to this who will be new to this, um, this kind of thing, and probably won't have much experience of this. I mean, what's... What's a, what kind of a, a, a practical example of this that people could maybe connect to and understand? Sure. Um, so I guess a practical example of, um, I, I can tell you a story of kind of like the, the function of human-centered design that I often teach when I, I uh, James heard this when I did this in a workshop, um, or, or the course that I did a couple of weeks ago. Um, so a really great example is that designers, the, the kind of work that do, I do and I teach other people to do is that uh, there are designers who create products, um, but the kind of work that we do is we're designing experiences. And so um, there's this really fantastic story um, in a book that I highly recommend. It's called Creative Confidence. Um, and it's a story about the MRI machine, how the MRI machine was developed. And uh, the, the, the time, um, Doug Dice, he was, the I think, the VP of, of new product design, um, and they were really excited about, in the 90s, piloting kind of the MRI technology because, uh, as we all have experienced, MRIs have, like, radically shaped the way that doctors can, can care for patients. And mm-hmm. uh, they were really excited, and they installed it in a couple of places. And one of the places they decided to install this new MRI technology was at a children's hospital. And so Doug really wanted to see what it, you know, how it functioned, if everything was going all right, if they did enough training. Um, and he shows up to the hospital, and there is uh, he sits in the technician room, and then he looks at the technician. He's like, "Hey, I, I think we're we're running behind. Uh, you know how 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 long is this going to be? And is this normal? Something wrong with the machine?" <laughs> and the technician says, "No, no, no, everything's fine with the machine. This is actually really common um, because we have an incredibly difficult time getting our patients to to come in the room." And he was like, "What are you talking about?" She's like, "It's just easier. Just go in the hallway and look for yourself." And he walks out into the hallway. And out in the hallway is a little girl with her mom, and she is hysterically crying. She's probably eight, uh, about how terrified she is of walking into this room by herself. Uh, as it's cold, it's dark, she has to sit still for a long time. Uh, it's a very tiny little space. It makes lots of loud noises, um, and her mom can't come in there with her. And uh, Doug walks back into the room with the technician, and he says, how often does this go on? And she said, oh, this happens all the time. In fact, we often have to sedate our patients in order to even get them into the machine. And Doug left that day from the hospital and was just devastated because they had spent so much time engineering like this incredible technology. And in the actuality of it in practice in a children's hospital, it's completely it was completely non-functioning because they couldn't even get patients in the room. And Doug went to some human-centered designers who, you know, started a, a, that wrote this book, A Creative Confidence, and said, uh, what do we do? And so uh, after weeks of kind of interviewing patients and families, uh, they ended up transforming the MRI room space, not from like a cold, sterile medical room, uh, but into this incredible landscape uh, where they have like vinyl stickers on the machine and they've repainted the walls into murals. And they turned each of the machines into kind of their own adventure experience. So some were pirate ships, some were submarines, um, some were cars. And they rewrote the scripts for the technician to help the kids um, hear the sounds MRI machine and the closeness and the sitting still as all part of this broader narrative of uh, adventure they were going on. And Doug came back a few weeks later, um, and he, he watched you know the MRI start up and on time. And as he left the room, um, when the child was leaving the room, he heard the little boy say to his mom, 
Um, Mom, that was so much fun. Can we come back tomorrow? And I think that this is like such a powerful story about like, Mm -hmm. this is what human centered design does because it's not about like the, the stuff that we make. It's about the experience that people are having with that stuff. Like it's not about like how good our songs are or like how good our worship services are. It's about the experience that people have when they're in our buildings, when they interact with our communities. Um, and I think that for me, that, that I have felt as somebody who uh, has grown up in church and has attended seminary uh, and attended a lot of different types of churches, that that is desperately missing because we just we just don't take the time to say we've made this incredible thing that no one is caring about or attending or connected to, and we just scrap it instead of asking ourselves why, um, which to me is the heart of empathy. It's like, why are you, why do you feel this way? What's going on? Um how can I understand where you're at better? Mm, that story is so powerful. Uh, I remember you telling it uh, before and I was blown away. And actually when you told it, you had some slides as well with <laughs> with photos of the original MRI machine and then the one, the the the, um, the submarine. And it was a yellow submarine. I remember it was a yellow submarine and all the walls were like painted blue and had fish and everything like that and the scripts were about them going on an adventure at the bottom of the sea and stuff like and it was just it was like this is the same thing that they're going this is the same thing that they're going for an MRI scan but it's a completely different experience because of the story and because yeah. because there's empathy and because yeah. you're, con- you're connecting with people where they are you're connecting with these children where they are rather than kind of standing back and saying like come to us you know yeah, what i mean absolutely and, which is like which is the heart of empathy absolutely and i think that to me was what captured my interest in this methodology of, of solving problems because it made me realize you know i think all of us have had the experiences with many of us maybe not all of us have had experience with churches where we're deeply frustrated and disappointed um and i i went through a pretty uh a, a very painful deconstruction uh, during college of a kind of shedding a very conservative evangelical faith um, and and coming out on the other side and feeling like I was still so misunderstood. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the ways that I felt like even the new churches that I attended, that the theology was good. I, I still didn't feel fully seen. And when I started connecting to some of these, you know, GE was this, was the, you know, company that created this MRI machine, they're a very much a for-profit company. Every single piece of technology we own uh, has teams of people who do this very work. And and if it's functioning so well in these for-profit areas, uh, it seems so obvious to me that we were missing this when it came to our spirituality. Because, you know, MRI machines uh, are, are a very specific kind of uh, need and medical and sterile. And if you can make that kind of transformative shift to something that is meaningful and like emotionally engaging, then like how much better could we do in our faith communities uh, when, when we're really supposed to be about like promoting, you know, people flourishing and the health of our communities and, and growth and like how much better could we be able to do those things? Um, theoretically, when pastors should have the skills to uh, be empathetic in ways that are transformative, not only for themselves, uh, but for the people around them. Uh, and to me, like, that is, like, a great tragedy that we uh, don't care enough about that in our theological spaces, um, that we're not more concerned about empathy uh, because, to me, that's the core of human experience and 
if we're not taking that time to understand people deeply, then uh, what are we doing, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, like in terms of, well, we'll talk about in terms of church, but then we'll also talk about in terms of culture. But firstly, in terms of church, what can happen when, when you don't have that empathy, when you don't have, when you're not creating that experience with the with the message because we know that the message of Jesus is like is about is powerful it can be it's about love it's about transformation it's about restoration you know um and and yet we can frame it in such a way where where it doesn't have that power at all um so what are the kind of when what happens when we don't have empathy as as a church and how can churches how can churches become more empathetic yeah, those are, those are both great questions. Um, I think the way that I see, uh, what I see most often in churches that uh, lack empathy is there is a massive disconnect uh, among groups in the church. So that could be like, your group could be like the elderly population in your community. It could be your young families. It could be your singles. It could be your staff. It could be your pastor. It could be your leadership team. I think it could be anybody. But when you have these like massive di- like disconnects around like what things are important and why, uh, that is a huge red flag to me that you're, you as a congregation, you as a faith community, uh, have not taken the time to build empathy with one another. Because if you're annoyed that somebody is upset about something, then you likely have not taken the time to understand why that thing matters to them. Because most of the time, what I have learned uh, as I've done this work on my own in projects and consulting with churches, is that uh, that disconnect is largely uh, grown out of some kind of misconception or not understanding uh, kind of the emotional root of why something is important to them. Um, A really great example of this is uh, the fight over church pews, (laughs) Uh, which which I've had to deal with uh, with more than one client that I've had. Um, I had a client that uh, said, you know, we really want to take out a couple of pews in the back because we we want, um, you know, families with strollers to feel like, they're, like they can sit in a sanctuary. And we recognize that strollers are either in the aisle and make it difficult for elderly people to come down um, or uh, they feel uncomfortable and they, they sit in, like, the room where they can only just kind of, like, see the screen or just hear the sermon. And so uh, when they propose picking out not even all the pews, just, like, like, two rows of pews in the back, like, a third of the church was in, like, complete uproar and was like, you can't do this. Like, the pews are so important. Like, they've been here for so long, and this is a part of our history and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like, my my mother, you know, helped renovate the building, and, and, and they were, like, so entrenched. And they were like, how do we convince them that the pews are not important? And I was like, that's not the problem here. Like, the problem here is that you don't understand, and I don't understand, why they're so, t- like, tied to these pews what do these pews emotionally represent to them that they think you're taking away? And when you start reframing empathy as this like root of like the emotionality we're experiencing, uh, it dramatically changes the way we think about our conflict. And it dramatically changes the way that we think about disagreement additionally. Um, because when this church took the time to say, um, help me understand why this is so important to you, they started to hear those stories of, I feel like I'm being left out of the church. Like, I feel like the church is moving on without us because it was mostly elderly people. Um, I feel like um, the things that are important to us are not represented in worship anymore. Or I feel like uh, these, these stories are being forgotten. 
and, and that is like an erratically different problem than like pews yeah. being removed from the back of the sanctuary. Yeah. And I think solutions to that are sitting down and saying, tell me why this is so important to you. What am I missing here? Because this is how I'm hearing it. And, and tell me what's missing there. And, and it does, and it really, it just takes good conversation often. Um, but it, but it can help heal those divisions among groups that fundamentally misunderstand each other. And, and I think that's true across so many of our churches, um, is that, that divide. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. There's always the thing behind the thing. It's never... Right. When people say stuff like, like, like that, it's never about that. It's never about the pews. It's, about, it's always about something deeper. It's something about something to do with their story, something to do with, with their play, with, with their identity, with, where, with, how, they, with how they connect with, with their community. Or, their, you know, it's something, like you say, in this case, it was, this is about our, this is about us feeling left out. And yeah. are you moving on be, without us? Then we're not part of this story anymore. And that's what the, it's like. So the question always is like, okay, what do they like? You say, what do those pews represent to you? What are they? What do they symbolise? And what does taking them away symbolise to you? Um, and, yeah. and then you can start rectifying that problem. So you, you could, I get, I don't know what happened in that circumstance, but you could say, we're going to do something to make sure that you feel honoured and that your story is honoured and that you are you feel part of this community whilst also being able to move forward and create this space for strollers that we need to, that we need to do. Um, How can we involve you in that process? How can we make you part of that? And so that's what empathy, and that's what empathy can do. Absolutely. And I would say that empathy also, the more you do it, the easier it gets because like once, once a person feels heard, the easier it is to go back to them and say, tell me why you're upset. I don't understand. And you don't have to go through as much of that, that stuff on the front end to get them to trust you because they already feel like they've been heard at least once before. And I think that like that is a culture in which um, innovation really can happen because I believe that innovation takes risk. And yeah. you cannot take risk if people don't trust you. Um, and so when we're talking about empathy, like there's a lot on the line. It's not just, you know, getting people to change their minds or you changing your mind. We're talking about building cultures in which trust uh, is given and and freely given so that we can take risks that allow us to actually do new things. Um, And to me, like, that feels like that's part of the reason I think empathy is, like, so, so important is because uh, without that trust, like, you just can't, you can't move these, like, new ideas forward because people have these huge emotional re- resistance and blockage um, that is only solved when they feel heard. And, and empathy is the place uh, where people feel heard. Um, and I always try to encourage churches, like, if, if there is any demographic within your community that you don't know very well, then, like, you need to go talk to them. Like, have a coffee with them. Like, talk to your youth. Talk to your families. Like, talk to the people who have been here for their entire lives and have every negative opinion that you don't want to hear about. Like, go sit with them and, like, listen, because the more you do that, the more they're willing to trust you when you ask them to let things go or take risks with you. Um, and, and, it, and it really pays back uh, dividends on that small investment you put up in the front um, because of the trust you build down the road. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And it's 
it's one of those things that once you actually see it, it becomes really obvious. And yeah. It's like, well, yeah, of course we should we should be listening and be empathetic and building relationships with people and listening to their stories. And we'll get on story in another episode, but uh, but yeah, it's um, it's just so once you once you realise it, it's like yeah, oh, of course, it's obvious, you know. Um, and once you begin practicing it, it actually becomes a bit more like a more natural. It becomes a habit. You know, you can start to do it more easily the more you practice it. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I'm also conscious that this principle. Um, like empathy internal empathy and design thinking we can actually t- think about this in terms of how we how we how we grow and change as a culture and True. and also even have relationships with people as well um and build relationships with people and there's so many there's so many um outworkings of this um how do you think this um, empathy, design thinking, the, the, the connections between those two. How how can we use that to kind of reframe our culture or transform or bring some transformation, like to our culture, which is so needed right now. Yeah, I I think um, you know the first thing that pops into my mind is the way that uh, political discourse happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that seems like the most obvious place to me that uh, just a tiny bit of empathy could go like a substantially long way. Uh, because no matter what position you hold on any given topic, um, there is a deeper and um, uh, usually emotional tie to that, that belief that you hold. Um, and what I really encourage people to do when I talk about, here's, I, I often talk a lot about um Here's how you conduct an interview with somebody that where you can actually gain information. Uh, and the primary way that I talk about doing that is through gathering stories. Um, and w- because when we gather stories, we hear like the, the humans behind uh, the ideas that we vehemently disagree with. And we actually start to understand, oh, I see that this is not really about the issue, or maybe it is. But the reason you care so much about this issue is for a very personal human reason that you and I can connect on. Um, because we all we both care about this thing deeply. It just manifests in different ways in our life. Um, and I think that when we storytelling, as we'll kind of talk about in the next couple of weeks, um, is such a key part of, of shifting uh, that, of using empathy as a tool. Because um, stories are the places where people share um, kind of their, their deepest needs, their deepest desires. Um, I'm a firm believer that our emotions are the root of everything that we do, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, mm. And when we allow our stories to be told, and when we tell other people our stories, uh, we get seen differently. And uh, we start to see ourselves and other people through stories. It, it's a part of what being human is. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I just imagine, like, what would our political discourse be if, like, instead of name calling and, you know, these like personal attacks, we spent time saying like, why do these particular policies that like, I totally don't agree with and feel frustrated by, why are these like emotionally important to you and your constituents? Uh, and let me share with you why this, the same is true for me and my constituents. Um, and I just, I feel like that is so missing. 
Um, and, and to just add a small amount of that humanizes people in a way uh, that I think our culture, uh, I would say globally, has lost in some pretty significant ways. I absolutely agree. I mean, yeah, political discourse is the most obvious, <laughs> the most obvious um, thing that comes to mind because there's so little empathy in that, yeah, in that area right now, uh, and it's the same in the UK as it is in in the states. That you know, it's it's become very kind of dualistic, and you're on my side, you're on their side, you're this or you're that. You know, over here it's mm-hmm. you're a remain, a rem- sorry, Ramona. I think people call it. Um, not a Remainer, or or a Brexiteer, you know, or you know, in the states it's you know Trump or whatever, um, whoever, whatever the or opposite. not Trump or yeah or Bernie or Biden or whatever. It's always there's always you know it's it's all dualistic and divided, and people are not pausing for a moment to, and again this does touch on story as well, and we'll get to that kind of in, in the next couple of episodes, but yeah just pausing for a moment and thinking actually you know it's not about winning yeah not about winning the argument it's about actually how can we create some constructive change how can we do something constructive and actually get people invested in that even if they have different political opinions to us how can we create something which can connect with them and you only do that with empathy you know by listening to them and actually trying to understand like you go back to the pews, like why is this important to you? Why, mm-hmm. why is this? Why is this connecting to you and you? What is so fundamental about this for you? You know, um, and then of course it's up to them to actually kind of engage and explain that because sometimes they don't. Um, but if they do, then you can actually build a healthy discourse and actually start to, you know, build almost kind of build a coalition in a sense and start to actually achieve something. Yeah. I, I think that people, too, are also, um, they're not used to being, like, cared about, <laughs> which I, I know <laughs> yeah. sounds, like, kind of ridiculous, but I, I really don't think, um, it, it, I spend a lot of time thinking about the ways, like, we talk to each other, um, and I, I think one of the most common kinds of ways of having conversation is, like, somebody will say something, and then another person will be like, oh, yeah, that relates to my life in this way, and then you kind of go back and forth telling these stories, but both of you are actually talking about yourself. And part of what empathy actually does is says that, like, I'm not going to talk for myself. Like, I just want to hear about you, and I want to ask you questions, and I want to learn, and I want to understand. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have conducted interviews with people who have either, A, started crying because they started sharing a story that they realized they had no idea was so meaningful to them, or B, said literally the phrase, I don't think I've ever said that out loud, or I don't think I've ever told anybody that. And, and this is often as in the, in the role of, like, largely estranged from them. Maybe we've met once or twice. And I think, to me, like, that encapsulates the power of empathy because we spend so much time trying to get our stories heard that when somebody takes the time to say, you know, I don't, I don't need to talk about myself. I just want to hear about your life, and I want to hear about your story, what makes you who you are. Like, instantly, you feel so seen and cared about. And I think as I think about, you know, the, the ways that our world uh, in any number of ways could be improved, um, that feels like at the core to me, uh, that, that this like need to listen and to be heard, um, that we spend so much time like yelling over each other because we don't feel heard. Uh, empathy is like the radical response to say like, I don't need to talk about myself. 
Like, I just want to know about you. And what that does for relationships, what that does to heal people who have been hurt um, and felt marginalized in a lot of conversations uh, can be transformative, not only for you, but also for them um, and, and your relationship with them. Um, and I think it's just such a, such a powerful thing, but so small, in my opinion. Um, it takes practice, but I think that it, mm. it, it can be easily done in our relationships. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and also, actually, all it takes is somebody to say, I don't have to have the final word. Yeah. I don't have to have the, I don't have to, you yeah, have the last word. I'm going to, in a sense, surrender my, my right to the last word. And I'm going to just listen and try and understand you and um, empathize with you and where you are and your story and why you feel this way and why you think this way. And I'm not interested in winning. I'm interested in listening. You know, I think um, yeah. so much yeah. of our political discourse and even religious discourse in some types. And, I mean, fundamentalism actually is all about this. It's about ego, about winning. Right. It's about being right. Yeah. You know, I mean, fundamentalism is, is that's what it is. It's about I'm right, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> I get to stand on the moral high ground and preach to you and tell you what's right and tell you who's in and out. And uh, and that's it. And and I get to have the final say. That's what fundamentalism is. Whether it's conservative fundamentalism or progressive fundamentalism, that's what it, that's what essentially what it is. I mean, that happens in religion, and it happens in a toxic religion anyway, and it happens in politics as well. And like having healthy discourse begins with saying, "I don't have to have the final word," and I want to listen and learn, and not just sit and tell everyone how right I am. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also, it's, I mean, empathy is perhaps the most difficult part about empathy is, is giving up the power in the conversation because, uh, you know, the number of interviews that I've had with people and I've been like, that thing that you just said is like dead wrong. Like, it's not even like we're disagreeing here. It's like, the, like you stated something that's just not true, but it's not my job to correct you in that moment. It's my job to understand like why that truth that you believe that I, I believe is factually incorrect uh, makes a difference in your life or influences you or has power over you. Um, and I think that that is so difficult for us because we live in a society, uh, and I think, you know, globally, where we need to prove that we're powerful and that we're right. Um, and empathy says, like, none of those things are important. Empathy says uh, what is most important is understanding and listening and caring for you in such a way that I see you better and more clearly at the end of our conversation, um, even if I didn't convince you of anything. And we're really bad at that. Like, we're really bad at that. And I would say that, like, politically, religiously, um, I think you're right. You know, when we think about the, the divide between, like, more fundamentalist uh, Christianity and, and maybe more progressive Christianity, it, it, it is littered across the, the, the spectrum and the ways that we talk to each other. Um, and some of the most powerful stories that I have heard of the ways people have been changed um, and influenced in their own beliefs are often the ones in which they encounter somebody in such a way that, that they, somebody they disagree with deeply or find to be, quote, wrong uh, in such a human way that it changes them. And that's exactly the function of empathy. Um, but it requires us to say, like, I'm willing to be changed and uh, I don't need to convince you. Like, it's not my job to change you. Um, I'm open to hearing 
your life and, and your story in such a way that might actually influence me to change. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so powerful. Just and it's, like you say, it is a small thing, really, but it's a really powerful thing if you actually start practicing it, and it could have transformative effects on church, on relationships, on politics, on culture if we start practicing this. Um, yeah. And so, just to finish, like, what to you is the core of what's the one thing that we can start to do to start practicing empathy better in in our churches and in our relationships? Uh, my favorite phrase to equip people with is, uh, "Tell me more about that," uh, because you would be surprised at like how many people, if you, as they start telling you a story or they make a comment, if you just say, tell me more about that, how, like, like two or three sentences expands into, like, two or three minutes of them monologuing something. Um, and I think, like, that phrase, like, because it's, it, it's not why. It's, it's just, like, please expand on your, your thought or idea. Um, it, it creates this, like, huge space for the conversation where the other person is then indicated, oh, you're not going to try to, like, compare it to your experience or convince me of anything, you just want to know more, great, I'm happy to talk about myself. Like, people love talking about themselves. And so, for me, like, that one act, even in our own relationships, whether it's with our partners or our coworkers, um, with our kids, um, when they tell stories or, like, say, like, that made me really mad, tell me more about that. Like, tell me why that was frustrating for you. That kind of, as when we'll get more into this next week, that kind of curiosity um, opens the door to, uh, to to empathy in a way that uh, allows you to see somebody more fully um, before you shut the conversation down or change the topic. Um, and, and getting into that practice and doing that with your friends and your family members and people that you love um, makes it a lot easier to do when the stakes still higher uh, in your workplace or in your church setting um, when the tensions are higher. Uh, and it becomes kind of this like natural inclination. And so my suggestion is like find a way to work that into like the conversations that you have every day. Like tell me more about what happened at work. Tell me more about what you did at school. Tell me more about that frustrating thing that somebody said to you on your way home. Um, that, that is the core to me of um, getting people to engage their story. Brilliant. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Um, I love that. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I'm excited. I'm even more excited now for the uh, continuation of this. Um, we're going to be talking about curiosity next time, and you kind of alluded to it in your last last bit, little bit there. Um, and yeah, so next time we're going to talk about curiosity and design and innovation and faith and how that impacts churches and culture and everything. So that's going to be an interesting conversation. So. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on this week, and I look forward to talking to you again and um, continuing this conversation. And um, I hope all of you will join us next time for that. And in the meantime, where can people connect with your work? Yeah, so I am on Instagram. I am a little bit slow to post. <laughs> uh, <but> my <laughs> Instagram is uh, two underscores and then in the water. Uh, and then you can also find uh, my work online at my website, which is inthewater.co. 
Um, and that has a little bit more information about uh, the kinds of services that I offer. I do a lot of um, curriculum development for like leadership organizations around how do we use design as a tool to teach leaders better. Um, and then I lead workshops and then I do individual consulting. So if you're interested in learning more about that, it's all on my website and you can read more about it there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's well worth it, I assure you. So, yeah. Um, so join us next week for the next part of this. And um, thanks again, Victoria. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Take care, everyone.